are too kind. Uh, church family, we missed you. Mm, genuinely. Uh, and it is good to be here. Will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119? Uh, for those of you that may be new with us, we are in the second of three summers here in the longest chapter of the Bible, and we're going to be in the 10th stanza, verses 73 through 80, in a moment. Uh, you may be wondering why they clapped and I said, if you, today's your first day, I haven't been here in a, a while. Uh, it's been, I've been gone so long, they've been playing games in my absence. I don't, I don't know, you come back and the whole place looks like Nintendo. I don't know, what do you do? Um, but the church was gracious to give me uh, 12 weeks of sabbatical time with my family, time to travel, time to go to other churches and worship with other like-minded uh, bodies of believers, both locally and uh, in our travels um, but I can tell you this, church, there's no place like home, and this is genuinely and truly home for us, and so we are, we are so grateful to be back with you. Thank you to everybody that did things in my absence. Thank you for being here every week. There were some great preachers. I mean, it really was the A-team. I brought the best preachers that I know uh, that I could get to come, and so uh, hopefully you were blessed in their series in, in Ecclesiastes. A special thank you to Pastor Jay and Pastor Brian, who I know did a lot of heavy lifting uh, in my absence. I mean, Brian last week did absolutely everything, <laughs> right, uh, in, including preaching and then teaching Connect class in addition to his normal duties. So uh, thank you to everybody who, who made it possible for us to be able to go. Um, uh, we're, we're glad to be back, though. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We're going to start in verse 73. I'm going to read down to verse 80. The psalmist records for us these words to the Lord. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to, to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Church family, let's pray together. Father God, I am grateful to you for your goodness that affords me the opportunity and the calling to pastor Nansman River Baptist Church. There is not a better church on the face of this planet than this local church. And I am so grateful for them. Father, we are grateful to you for the goodness of your word, how it encourages us and instructs us in all manners of righteous living, knowledge of the truth of who you are. God, through these verses here in Psalm 119, will we help us to see our creator and why our creator knows best. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
You may be seated. In the early 1950s, I wasn't quite around for this. There was a show on television in the earliest days of television. The show actually began on radio and transitioned to television known as Father Knows Best. Father Knows Best uh, was in first radio, then television sitcom about the idyllic American family, right? The husband who works, the wife who stays home, the two and a half, they, they really did have three children, but one of them was smaller. Everything could kind of wrap up neatly in 25 minutes. And in that show, in just about every case, the father really did truly know best. But that phrase, I'm not really going to talk about the show, that, that phrase, father knows best, became what's known as a television trope, meaning it it turned the idea upside down. It turned it on its head to where subsequent television shows, even to our day now in 75 years since we've had, or so since we've had television, now fathers on TV rarely know best. They're usually portrayed as fools, as, as behind the times, or uh, in, in a lot of cases as unengaged often drunkards in their homes who really don't know anything about their children or what's best for their spouse. This is what's happened over the course of 75 years of television from father knows best to father knows nothing. This isn't a sermon about fathers. This is a sermon about our creator. It's entitled, The Creator Knows Best. But I use that television trope as an example because very often that same mentality has been embraced by many in our culture. Many people in our world, if they do believe there is a God, they think him to be unengaged with his creation. They would think that even they would know better than his revealed will through his holy scriptures to them. They would picture him more as a modern TV dad who may occasionally have some good advice to give, but more often than not is antiquated and outdated and isn't really even on the scene at all. But here's what the psalmist tells us today, that we serve a creator who truly does know best. The main idea of today's sermon is as our creator, the Lord knows what is best for us in every circumstance of life. There is no one who knows more about the creation, the universe, down to the microscopic level of what makes us who we are than the one who created it. Over the years, we have grown in knowledge about how God's creation works, but we will never know what he knows. We will never know to the extent that he knows. We will never surpass his ability to know what is best for his universe, for his world, for our church, and for you and for your family, the creator knows best. 
I'm going to present these verses to us today in a sermon with four points, the first of which being a theological argument that the other three are predicated upon, meaning I'm going to spend a lot of time just here at the front end making a theological argument for us and then kind of give some theological implications from the text as we proceed. So number one, the Lord created you with intention and purpose. You may say, well, Pastor, I, I know that. I, I, would, I, I would wager that there are people in this room that don't truly believe that. That there are people gathered here this morning that don't have a right understanding of themselves in, the, in their place in God's creation. Which is why I want to spend a, an ample amount of time here just on this first phrase of this stanza of Psalm 119. In verse 73 where the psalmist begins, your hands have made and fashioned me. Now so often when we have walked through these different stanzas of Psalm 119, I've said going back to last summer, that the first line will often, not in every case, but will often tell us how we should read the rest of it. And I believe that's true here. We are supposed to read the rest of these verses in light of God's good creation with intent and purpose. And so let me address that in three ways. First, you are not an accident. Now, when I say you're not an accident, let me, let me, let me give an example of that in, in two ways. Number one, occasionally, people will introduce their children, and sometimes their youngest, they'll say, this was our little accident. <laughs> Parents, if you have a tendency to do that, I know you're doing that from a good heart, but don't, don't refer to your children as accidents, because they're not, okay? You may not have planned them, but they weren't an accident. Because God planned them before the foundation of the world. Regardless of the circumstance with which, is they, were, which, which they were conceived, God knew that that human being would be here. They're, they're not an accident. But on, on more of a big picture, a meta-narrative standpoint, not just as in a, hey, we weren't really planning this one, but, but on, on a larger scale, we, the human race, are not an accident. This is an important point to argue in the 21st century. It's important because what dominates our world today is a philosophy, really a worldview known as secular humanism. And the, the foundation of secular humanism is this. Humans are an accident. That we evolved over millions and millions of years from the primordial ooze and slime through fish to monkeys into us. And that there was no hand of God controlling this pattern, that these just this thing happened somehow on our planet. The reason that I say that is foundational to the idea of secular humanism is because the, the key tenet of secular humanism is that humanity gets to determine the rules, that, that humans get to say what is right and what is wrong, that humans get to collectively decide together how they are going to live and how we are going to function, and that there is no higher authority than human thought. That's the key tenet of secular humanism. But it is all built and predicated on this very idea that we come from nothing, that we're all an accident. 
Because if there is no God who created us, then there is no God who can tell us what we should do. But the scripture clearly tells us that we are not an accident. In Psalm 139, which is most often uh, referred to when talking about human creation, the psalmist writes in verses 13 and 14, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Both in Psalm 119, verse 73, Psalm 139, 13, and elsewhere in Scripture, the authors of God's Word are clear. You are not an accident. And we are not an accident. That God created us, that God formed us, that God knit us together to to use his words from Psalm 119, your hands have made me. There is intention, not just accidental circumstance that has brought you into this world as a part of God's good creation. Second, you are not a mistake. Now you say, what's the difference between an accident and a mistake? Well, an accident would say we, we, we weren't really planned. A mistake would say that there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the way God made me. That's the difference between an accident and a mistake in the way that I'm thinking about it here. Really, there are likely people, just as there are those who may be gathered with us today, that, that are challenged by the idea that they are not an accident. There are also those gathered with us today who are very likely challenged by the idea that they are not a mistake. Because they would look at themselves and they would see imperfection. And what I am speaking of now is not the imperfection that we all share in our sin nature. I'm talking about the way that God created you, who you are. You look at yourself and you compare yourself in self-loathing brought on by idolatrous and by idolatry and covetousness. You compare yourselves to others and you're like, well, I, I'm certainly not like that person is. I'm not as smart as that person is. I'm not as fit as that person is. I'm not as skilled as that person is. I've got these things wrong with me. So when God made me, he made a mistake. Now let's speak again into our culture. We are living in a day where people are embracing the idea, again, rooted in secular humanism, rooted in this idea that we're an accident, that, that there are people who are born one way, but it's a mistake, that their, their brain is in the wrong body, that they were born a man, but that they, they really are a woman, or they were born a woman, or they really are a man, or some third or fourth or fifth thing that we don't even know what those things are. Listen, folks, you were created the way you are on purpose. And I don't care what's wrong with you. I don't care with how you feel. I don't care with how inadequate sometimes you feel comparing yourselves to yourself to another person. You are the way that you are. You've been through the things that you've been through. You know the things that you know. You were created the way that you were created on purpose purpose. Back in Psalm 139, 
The psalmist says in verse 16 this time, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The psalmist is clear for us, church family. Not only are we not an accident, that, that we're here by God's good intention, but we're also here the way that we are for a reason. Because not only did his hands make us, his hands fashioned us. So can I just encourage you for a moment? If you feel like in your created self inadequate, know this, you're exactly as God wants you to be. If you feel in yourself something like this just overwhelming pressure to be something that, that you're not, Go to the word of God, clarify that through the word of God and recognize today that God made you as you are. That you're not an accident. You're not a mistake. And thirdly, you are on purpose for a purpose. That when the psalmist says your hands have made and fashioned me, one of the things that's included in that idea is that you're not here to just go through life, live and die, return to the dust, and then nothing comes of it. That there is genuine purpose in God's creation. And as the crowning work of God's creation, humankind, men and women, we have purpose. You're on purpose. Now, you may look at yourself, just think about what we've already said. You may look at yourself and think, well, I'm flawed, I'm failing, I, have, I, can't, I can't do the things that other people can do, I can't think the way that other people can think, I don't have the skills that other people have, and so there's no way that God can use me. Listen, reject that lie from the enemy and realize that you may not be able to do everything that everyone else can do, but you can do something that God has created you to do on purpose. So let's think about our purpose then in two ways. First, in a more general sense, why are we here? This, what many have said, is the greatest question of mankind. Why are we here? Well, Colossians 1 tells us. First, it describes Jesus for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So through Jesus, God creates everything. Now get this. All things were created through him and for him. So speaking general, in a general sense, that like universal question, why are we here? We are here for him. Some nearly 400 years ago, in the not too distant future from the Protestant Reformation, a group of people in England and Scotland got together and crafted what is now known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism with 107 questions that they thought everyone needed to know the answer to. And you know the very first question is this one. What is the chief end of man, they asked. You know the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Think about this. A group of dedicated, 
Christian scholars gather together, and what is the first question they think we need to answer? Why are we here? And what is the answer that they give? Because God created us for his glory and to enjoy him, our creator. So in a general sense, this is why you are here. You are here to glorify God. And you say, well, is that speaking about me particularly, or is that speaking about all of humanity? Well, both. It is speaking about humanity. That we can say this with confidence, that every human being that has ever walked this face of this earth, or every human being that one day will, do so for the glory of the one who created them. Do so so that they can enjoy the creator who created them. This is why we are here. But we can also think about this in a specific sense, my friend. That God made you, not just us. And I'm a big us guy. I'm a big corporate body of believers. I very often speak in us, we kind of language because I think that language is lost in our world today and we need to refine that in the church that we were created for God's glory. But I want to say this, that you specifically, singular, were created for God's glory. Now, there's... Places you can go in scripture and kind of illustrate this, and I'm going to go and I'm going to use one of them, but I must first address it like this. People will often go to these kind of verses and make them their, have you ever heard this term, make them their life verse. Like, oh, God speaks to me through this verse. This verse is about me. I'm going to read Jeremiah 1.5. Let me start by saying Jeremiah 1.5 is not about you. You want to know how I know? Because you're not Jeremiah. No. We have at least one person named Jeremiah in the room. You're, you're not that Jeremiah, okay? Are you ready? This is the Lord calling Jeremiah into his service, speaking to him, commissioning him for his prophetic ministry. And he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, out of context, this is, good, is, this is bad, but in context, here's what we see. There is a principle that applies that God isn't just speaking about humanity in general, but God is speaking to one man and saying, I formed you, Jeremiah, for a purpose. You see, God didn't just create you for his glory in a, in a general human sense, but in a specific personal sense. You may not be a prophet to the nations, likely will not be. But before he formed you in the womb, he knew you. Before you stepped foot on this earth, he had a purpose for you, being a part of his good creation. This is a foundation that we must stand upon, church. If, if, if we're going to battle the lies of the enemy in our world today that tell us that humans get to make their own way and make their own path, and by the way, also tells us that humanity is expendable if they are a nuisance or an inconvenience, all of that is built on the idea that we are an accident or that there's such a thing as a mistake and there's really no purpose in front of us. But when we stand on the biblical truth of creation, that God made every one of us with intention and purpose, it changes the way that we think. So with that in mind, 
we go back to Psalm 119. And back in Psalm 119, the psalmist is going to bounce around from a few different ideas. I want us to see the main three. First, the creator, this is the Lord God who created you, provides for our first understanding. Keep reading there in verse 73. Give me understanding, the psalmist asks, that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. So the first thing this good creator who creates us with intention and purpose does here in this in this part of Psalm 119 is he provides for our understanding. The psalmist cries out to God, give me your, give me understanding that I may learn your commands. You created me so you alone can help me to understand the way that I'm supposed to live in your creation. And we need supernatural help to understand things that are supernatural. The Apostle Paul confirms this for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, in Paul's day, it was a fairly popular thing. I think a guy could earn his living doing by traveling the rhetorical circuit. They would, they would go from one city to the next, and there were places these people would gather, and they would, they would stand up and give these big philosophical, rhetorical arguments, and they would create for themselves secular disciples. Now, we're talking about 2,000 years ago. The, the Greco-Roman world was embracing this in the same kind of way that people do today. And so Paul makes a distinction between what all of these other scholars are doing and what he's doing and against what all of these other religions are doing and what he is doing. Because he says we're imparting words that can't be taught by human wisdom. Human wisdom can't understand them, can't process them. Why? Because they have to be taught by the Spirit because they are spiritual truths that only spiritual people understand. Now, what does that mean? It means that there are things in the Bible that only born-again people have eyes to see. I'm, I'm always amazed when Christian people get frustrated with non-Christian people for not understanding biblical truths. Non-Christian people don't understand biblical truths because they're not Christians. <laughs> They've not been made alive in the Spirit of God. They've not had the scales fall from their eyes. They've not moved from darkness to light. And so because of that, they wander around in worldly wisdom, which is truly just ignorance of all that is really important. But God makes us able. God makes us able to see we need his supernatural help to understand spiritual truths that are rejected by natural man. And here's the good news. He gives us that help. Jesus, telling his disciples in John 16, talks about the one who has come to help us. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Could you imagine being with Jesus in the flesh and him saying these words, it is to your advantage that I go away? Where it's like, oh, the, the disciples had such a greater advantage because they were with Jesus. But Jesus says, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. Process that, process that for just a minute. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, now you notice in your Bible or on the screen that, that helper is capitalized because it's a person. This is the third person of the Trinity. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. 
will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteous because I, the righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the rulers of this world is judged. Jesus promised and sent help. Oh, and not just a little bit of help. <laughs> you ever called somebody for help? You know, you were doing something, you needed a, you needed a hand and maybe, maybe one of your kids, you know, hey, come over here, and, and really you, you could have done a better job if they had just stayed out of it. Sometimes people approach the Holy Spirit like that, but that's the, wrong way to, that's the wrong way to view it. Listen to us. We are completely and utterly inadequate to understand the things that, that Scripture can teach us apart from the Holy Spirit helping us to see them. He is not just a little help. He's not help that we can call on, oh, when we get into really bad circumstances or when we find something in Scripture that we don't understand. He is our perfect helper. He is the one that is so good at helping that Jesus could say, it is good that I leave you because another one is coming. Who isn't going to be able to just invest in in 12 guys, but is going to be able to go and convict the entire world of their sin and bring the world to understanding of righteousness and judgment. So that leads us to a question. How much reliance do we really practice on the Holy Spirit in things like understanding Scripture? Remember, the, the big picture of Psalm 119 is the place of Scripture in the lives of those who follow the Lord. And how much reliance. So, so when, when the psalmist says, I, I need your understanding here. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Commandments is a synonym for scripture. So how much reliance do we actually show, do we actually have on the Holy Spirit? You see, when we rely on the Holy Spirit to teach us spiritual things about God through his word, that means it goes beyond just some cursory reading of the Bible in our daily quiet time. It goes beyond inhaling theological idea after theological idea simply to know them. It goes beyond even disciplines like scripture memory, which are good. You see, we must understand that without him, we have no understanding. Without him, even the most basic verses of the Bible are incomprehensible to us because we are flesh And these are spiritual truths. But when our eyes are opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to his truths, a whole new world opens to us. Not a world of good ideas and good suggestions and and some decent ways to live your life. No, the way that we can actually walk in him. That we can know his judgment and his knowledge. That we can believe in his commandments. This is what we're going to teach at VBS. The theme verse, that, that was the verse that Pastor Steve read was our theme verse for VBS this week. Make me know your ways, teach me your paths. Psalm 25, 4. <laughs> this is what we're going to tell kids this week at Vacation Bible School. There's one way to know the path of God. It's when he opens our eyes to the truth of it in his word. So, the creator helps us to understand. Second, the creator helps us in our trials. Pick up in the middle of verse 75. And, and that is faithfulness 
and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. So once again, as we have already seen in previous stanzas of Psalm 119, as as recent as last week, and we will continue to see as we walk through this, this summer and next, the psalmist is in the midst of persecution. The psalmist is in the midst of affliction. He's in turmoil. And yet over and over he professes his faith that the Lord will be faithful to him. Even when he recognizes, as he does in the second part of verse 75, that the Lord is the one afflicting him. He says, you have, in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. That sometimes our affliction is the, the creator's fire that tries us like gold and silver, but then some things happen. What does he do? Verse 76, he brings comfort. Listen, regardless of what you're going through today, Christian, you can look to God, you can look to God, your creator, for comfort. You can look to him and know that as the world rages around you, and I recognize in a room this size with this many people, someone right now is in the fire. You're feeling it. Life is hard. You don't know that you have tomorrow. Join with the psalmist. Cry out to the Lord. Let your steadfast love comfort me when in my affliction the creator brings comfort. He knows best. Verse 77. The creator brings mercy for life. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. These are things Christians say, but I wonder if we ever mean. We say things like, oh, it's by the mercy of God that we have another day. I think in in our core, I hope Christians, we as a church, we believe those things. But those things really get tested when we think we may not actually have another day. Most people in here, if if I were to ask you and you'd be honest, you would say, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to wake up tomorrow. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. Most of us think we're actually going to wake up tomorrow. We decorated this whole place. Everybody's prepared for vacation Bible school because we're pretty sure we're going to wake up tomorrow. There may be somebody in here that's not really sure about that. Let's be honest. There, there, there may be. That day is going to come for all of us. Like a thief in the night. We may not. We're not promised tomorrow. But the Lord gives us mercy for, for life, that his, his goodness to us can sustain us from one day to the next, no matter the affliction or persecution that we face. Then verse 78 tells us that our creator deals with evil on our behalf. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Man, is this one hard to do? It's really hard to let vengeance belong to the one who says vengeance is mine. So much of our pushback of this stanza of Psalm 119 within our flesh comes from our desire to be in control. This is what we want. We want to be in control. And we specifically want to be in control when things aren't going well. We, we especially want to be in control when, when life seems to be falling apart when people are saying, as they were here against the psalmist, falsehoods about him, when the insolent have surrounded him, are seeking to put him to shame. And what does he say? I'll meditate on your precepts. (laughs) 
this understanding that you're going to give me, God, I'm just going to live there. I'm going to trust, God, that you know best. I'm going to trust that you will fight for me. I'm going to trust that you will not allow the evil to go unpunished. I'm going to trust in you and in your word that you have given me understanding for, regardless of your trial. Listen to me, church. There is no greater help than the one who created us. Number three, number four, the creator alone makes us blameless. Final two verses here. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. The insolent want to put him to shame, but he turns to God and says, help me to not be put to shame. How are we not put to shame? We are not put to shame because the creator is able to make us blameless before him. All of God's creation has sinned. All of humanity has sinned. And it is to our great shame that we have turned our backs to God and turned towards our own ways. This is the argument that the scripture makes about mankind, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that every one of us have fallen short. And in our flesh, we are put to shame. But... But God has done something for us. God has made a way through the good news of Jesus. God has made a way by sending his son to die in our place, raised to life, as we sung about a few minutes ago, paying the price for our sins, that if we will come to him in faith and repentance, we will not be put to shame but we will be given the gift of everlasting life. The apostle Paul records like this in Colossians chapter one. He says, and you, writing to Christians who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who we used to be. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven in which I, Paul, became a minister. Oh, here's the good news. First to the church, this is what we used to be. Oh, but what we are now is something totally different. What we are now is radically, tra- radically transformed by the power of the gospel, able to trust in our good creator who created us with intention and purpose. And we can believe that in all of life circumstances, knowing that we will not be put to shame because he has made us blameless. If you don't have faith in Jesus today, know something. You are not blameless no matter how you think about yourself. You may think yourself pretty good. Most people do. Actually, when they poll people, you know, in our, in our world, and they say, do you think most people are good? Most people say no. Do you think you're good? Most people say yes. Well, you know, we often, we look at it around everybody else. And we're like, oh, those people, man, they need to get it together. We look at ourselves. And we're like, I've got it together. But we don't. Outside of Christ, we don't. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself blameless. Only Christ, through whom all things were created, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can you go from shame and blame to transform life, trusting in him because he has saved you. It's the free offer of the gospel, my friend. You can believe this today unto salvation. There's nothing else that you need to do 
but simply believe and confess. And we're here to help you in that belief. We'll have pastors in the lobby after the service. We'd love to talk to you. I'll be out there. Come find me. We'll connect you with somebody that can help you walk in that belief as your spiritual eyes are opened to your sin and the hope that we find in Christ as he takes us from being dead to being alive. So what? Quick question for you, church. Do I trust in the creator's good plan and provision in all things? I included the words all things there because... If I just asked it like this, do I trust in the creator's good plan and provision? Many of us would say, oh, yeah. I do in this aspect of my life. I do in this aspect of my life. I do over here. But hold on. I said in all things because there very well may be a part of your life that you just don't really demonstrate your trust in God for. When hardship comes, when persecution comes, when affliction comes, when sickness comes, when whatever it is, you're like, no, 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 I got this. Or even the opposite is true. When life seems to be going well and, and blessings seem to be flowing, you're like, oh, look at all the things that I did to make this happen. Are you actually trusting in God, our creator, and his good plan and provision? I just want to give a warning quickly from Scripture because there are likely somebody that's been sitting here from the beginning, from the time, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes ago when I started talking about you're not an accident and you're not a mistake and you're sitting there, you're just kind of grumbling in your heart. You're like, if you only knew what I've been through, if you only know how I feel. If you, listen to scripture. Isaiah 45, verse nine. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen vessels. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it? What are you making? Or your work has no handles. There's a warning in scripture telling us, don't turn to God and say, why did you make me like this? That's not the place of the creation. And the, the illustration is a pot, is a clay pot. A clay pot doesn't look at the one who has shaped it and say, why did you make me without handles? But so often we look at God like that and say, why are you allowing me to go through this? Why did you make me this way? Why did you place me in this family? What, what, why am I the way that I am? And we should heed the warning of scripture that we are not an accident, that we are not a mistake, that we are not meaningless, but that with intentionality and purpose, God made you for his glory the way that you are. And because of that, then my friend, you can fully trust in him to know best. The author of Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Let me implore you today, my friends. You may not understand everything that is going on in your life or in the world in which we live, but you can, we can trust in our good creator who does know everything and is working together all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to do something a little different in response because we're going to say to God now that we trust in him for the next four days in the life of our church. The next four days in the life of our church, more people will be volunteering than any other time throughout the year. 
I love Vacation Bible School. I love it for several reasons. Number one, it really is an opportunity for our whole church to come together to love our community. We have almost 200 elementary, I didn't stutter. We have almost 200 elementary children that are registered to come to VBS. I didn't count preschoolers. I didn't count our teenagers that are volunteering. I didn't count all the adults, you know. Five-year-olds to fifth graders. Carolyn told me this morning, almost 200 have pre-registered. More will show up at the door tomorrow. It's going to take a mass of people to minister to them. And here's, we could do all of that in our own flesh. We could do all of that in our own understanding. And we could probably put on a pretty good vacation Bible school. But if we do it in trusting in God, that he is the one that brings fruit, not us. That he is the one that impresses his truth in the lives of children and not us. If we'll do it in that, then amazing things can happen. So just as we would do with a mission team, as we send, I don't know, 12, 14 mission teams away from here a year, we often pray for them in service. We're going to pray for our VBS workers like they're a mission team this morning. So here's what we're going to do. Here's how I'm going to close the, the sermon. If you are working in Vacation Bible School this week, if you're volunteering Monday to Thursday in Vacation Bible School, I want you to come up here. I just want you to line up up here. I warned you in the meeting that you are going to have to do this, so come on. Carolyn even made it in here from preschool. There we go. Come up here and you just turn around and face them. Most of you even got the message to wear your blue shirt. If you didn't, it's fine. You got a blue shirt, put it on tomorrow. You need to have your blue shirt on tomorrow. Now, we have VBS volunteers that are in the preschool hall right now. We have VBS volunteers that are in our youngest kids' worship area right now. We have VBS volunteers that we heard this morning, like the whole family's sick, and we got to pray for them to get better. So we got, there's more than just this. But church family, I want you to see how many people, young people, not so young people, like whatever, how many people it takes to actually do what we're going to try to do. We put a lot of resource, time, energy. It's not just about decorating the place. It's not just about having great snacks and playing good games. Like this is a mission team that's gonna do two things. I say this on the first day of VBS to, our, to the kids that show up, I think all eight years that I've, I've been here. So I'm gonna say it to all of you. I want this group of people to do two things starting tomorrow. Number one, I want every kid that comes into this place to know these two things. First, that this church loves them. I want them to experience in every hallway and every classroom and every cycle, everything that they do, that this, the people that gather in this building love them. And the second is that Jesus loves them. However old they are, Whatever kind of family they come from, whatever exposure they've had to church, we want them to know in their own way that Jesus loves them. And so that's what we're going to pray now together as a church family for this mission team as we get ready for Vacation Bible School starting in the morning. So church, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and women who have already, many of them, given an extraordinary amount of their time for what's going to happen here, Lord willing, tomorrow morning through Thursday evening. We thank you, God, that we can demonstrate your love and the love of our church through something like a vacation Bible school. We thank you, God, that in your goodness to us and in our reputation in our community, dozens and dozens and dozens of people will bring their children to our VBS who do not come to church here, many of them who do not go to church anywhere. And I pray that every interaction they have with the adults that are standing here now will be 
interactions that show that child beyond a shadow of a doubt that the people who gather here, Nansman River Baptist Church, love them and that you love them. God, would you keep us well? Would you keep us energetic? Would you keep us on the same team? Help us not to squabble with each other and to be territorial around, well, I did this and you're doing that. Would you, would you just bless the next four days that we pray to the glory of God, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, workers. You may, be, you may go uh, have a seat. And as you are, church family, I invite you to stand with me as we worship the Lord together.